Hey, if you're pregnant over 40, I have just the community for you. It's a private community away from Facebook where women just like you come together to meet and support one another during pregnancy. To sign up for the waitlist, go to over40fabulousandpregnant.com forward slash waitlist and be the first to know when the membership is open. I can't wait to see you inside. Welcome to Over 40, Fabulous and Pregnant. I am your host, Jamie Massey, and you're listening to episode 37. If you're looking for pregnancy stories of women over 40, you've come to the right place. Today on the show, we have Sam from Australia, who is sharing her pregnancy story at 42. And what is so inspiring is that her fertility journey started in New York. And at 29 weeks, she packed everything up to move all the way back to Australia so she could be closer to her family. And I'm so excited to support Sam's journey doing this as a single parent. I think it's such a beautiful story. Before I was married, I was a serial dater, and I kind of gave up the idea that I would ever meet someone. And if it wasn't for my husband, I could totally see myself doing this journey alone also. And I just, I commend her for being so independent and having all the courage to do this. And for all the other women doing it alongside her. And while Sam and I were recording the show, I could see this bright lightning strike and a huge clap of thunder. It 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 really scared me. It was humorous and totally interrupted the show. And so I cut that piece of the show out. And I put it after the outro music of the show. So if you want to get a little laugh and a blooper, if you will, enjoy that at the very end of the show. I forgot to mention last week on the show that I was actually a guest on Bethany's podcast called Whole Woman Health Podcast. She was a guest on my show. She invited me on her show to share my fertility journey. Now, it's not done yet, but it was such a fun and it turned out so good. I'm I'm proud of myself. It was really good. And you know, we talked about loss because that's the only thing I know. And we still laughed and I almost cried. And it was such a good, fun experience. So if you want to listen to that, I will leave a link in the description. Also, you might notice that I don't have any advertisements on the show. And I intend to keep it that way 
I I don't want to go that route. I am still working to create a community. And so I never intend to put advertisements on the show. And I just want to be totally transparent about that. And one thing I would like to ask you, will you please put a review on Apple and please give me five stars. This helps me be able to share to other women like you and I would really appreciate it. If you can't give me five stars, please email me and tell me. I always want to make this show better for you. And with that, Let's get into Sam's solo journey at 42. Sam, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. And before we get to your pregnancy story, Sam, will you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. I'm 42 years old. I live in Australia. I have been traveling around the world pretty much my most of my life, so very independent person. I work uh, full-time for a travel company. Like I said, travel is my life. So I've been to 72 countries and seven continents, lived over three countries, just came back to Australia actually at 30 weeks pregnant. So yeah, I just pretty much live to work and work to live and work to travel essentially is, is my is my life goal. So obviously that's changing quite a lot these days. So let's go back to the beginning when you first started your journey. So I actually um, got told when I was 27 years old that I couldn't have children. That was back in when I lived in London. Um, So I pretty much put out pregnancy completely from my brain, got rid of the whole thought and notion of having children. What did they say? Why couldn't you have children? So I have endometriosis. Mm. And so I had a couple of laparoscopies and they said after those that they'd and this was back in the day when I was very naive as well, you know, 27 years old, didn't know the right questions to ask and trusting the NHS doctors in the in the UK and just figuring out things. And I had no idea. So it really came down to them saying, oh, it's almost impossible for you to fall pregnant because you've got endometriosis, which is basically the be all and end all of what put that notion out of my head. And I was with my ex at the time and we both said, all right, well, we'll just keep trying anyway. And then we broke up a few years later and, and sort of got to this point. I hit my 40th birthday in 2020 of all times in the middle of the lockdown in New York and was like, you know what, I'm, I'm really curious if I'm fertile. And I just, I guess the loneliness of COVID and everything just made me realize that, hey, I'm really missing something from my life. You know, I've kept myself busy for so long really kind of pushing that notion of kids out of my head because I kept busy. So I was traveling and going to festivals and concerts and working 24-7 and just, you know, really sort of living life. And then COVID kind of really changed my perspective on everything Mm -hmm. and being so lonely and and isolated, even in a city like New York City, when, you know, there's millions of people, it was very isolating during COVID. So I went and got got my fertility tested once everything kind of reopened in September and they came back with amazing numbers on paper. Mm-hmm. So the, num- the numbers came back and good AMH and all that stuff and they're like, oh yeah, just, you shouldn't have any problems falling pregnant. So that was definitely a uh, eye-opener and bought mm-hmm. me a lot of tears that I'd wasted so many years of my life not having children. I'd been single for the good part of a decade anyway, so <laughs> that didn't help the situation, <laughs> but I probably did that 
you know, subconsciously, you know, remaining single because I kind of didn't want to disappoint anyone with the fact that I couldn't have kids. Mm. You were in New York whenever you started all this. I was, yeah. So I started out September 2020, New York City, and just moved back to Australia this year in January. Okay. So I did, did the whole process over there. So how did you start the process with, like, did you use a sperm donor? How did you go about that? Yeah. So when I first started looking into the pregnancy journey, I actually had a couple of friends back in Australia that had a single mothers by choice. And mm-hmm. that sort of gave me that little firecracker to, hey, this can be done. I can do this on my own. Mm-hmm. So I started down the rabbit hole of all of the donor websites, all the cryobanks. Oh my gosh, it was very overwhelming. <laughs> uh, probably the hardest part of the journey and really sort of picking a donor and going down and, and I started a, a blog about it and how to, you know, how, how what to do to pick a donor. So, you know, I started doing all of these web webinars with the cryobanks to get free memberships. Uh, so it's a really good hot tip if anyone is doing that. If you do the do the webinars, you can get free membership to their website, which normally is anywhere from $50 to $250 to join up wow. to look at the donor sperm. But once you get in there, it's, it's, you know, choosing all the filters and getting everything done. And of course, prior to actually choosing the donor, you have to get approved through your fertility clinic to make sure that all the genetic testing is done to make sure that you're not picking a donor that has the same genetic disorder as Mm -hmm. yourself. Mm -hmm. So once I got... 10,000, what felt like 10,000 blood vials drawn (laughs) from me, Uh, I got all the results back from that. That's when I started to really sort of knuckle down and and select the donor before anything even happened at the fertility clinic because we needed to be ready. But during that time was a really important time to start tracking cycles, you know, really downloading the apps and peeing on sticks every every few mm-hmm. days, to, tracking the, the LH levels and and making sure that everything was working as, as expected and everything was perfect for me. It was really, pre- the app predicted when I would be ovulating and I'd pee on a stick and I was ovulating. So I, my mm-hmm. cycles were very, very regular. From someone who had endometriosis 13 years prior, I'd had pretty regular cycles since my laparos- laparoscopies. Mm-hmm. But yeah, really getting all the numbers and the tests and the donor picking, all of that stuff kind of all happened very quickly within the space of a month. And then I was told that I couldn't start fertility treatment until I got either signed a waiver or got vaccinated. Um, I wasn't immune to chickenpox, so I had to get the varicella vaccine, which put me on a three-month delay of starting any fertility Mm. treatment because they have to do one injection and then 30 days later, do another injection, and then they won't start fertility treatment until 30 days after that. I am pro-vaccine, so I was, all right, let's get that done. I know how dangerous chickenpox can be in an adult, so I didn't hesitate doing that. Yeah, what about picking out a donor? How was that for you? And also, what was your plan going into this? Was it IVF, or were you going to do an IUI? Yeah, so when we started out, the doctor suggested going straight to IVF. Mm -hmm. So that obviously played a lot on my mind as to cost and and also just how much was involved in the IVF 
world. So I actually decided with my doctor to start with two IUIs. So that mm. determined what sort of vials I would purchase from the donor bank as well, the cryobank. So she said that my chances through IUI were about 5% being because I was 40 years old. So mm. there's that first thing about being 40 is, hey, you've got very slim chance. So, you know, being told 27 can't have kids and now at 40, hey, you're going to have a really big problem trying to get pregnant again. Yeah. But we decided we'd do two IUIs. So when purchasing a donor sperm, you have to buy the washed vials. So the sperm is separated from the semen. So because the IUI obviously is getting right up into the uterus. So, but picking mm -hmm. a donor itself is, like I said, probably the hardest part of the whole process. <laughs> Trying to not look at the donor as in, hey, would I date this guy? Or it's more, hey, this is going to be the genetics of my child. So mm -hmm. I really kind of left most of the filters off and basically went through the genetic history and the medical history of the donor uh, was my biggest mm -hmm. key to picking somebody. Mm -hmm. I did also choose the donor based on a couple of things. You know, I wanted to make sure that race, I, I, being a single mother, always is going to be a little bit hard. I would, nothing against any, any, I would love a little mixed race baby, but unfortunately being in Australia, it can be quite difficult and already being a single mum by choice, you know, that, that was one of the key points for me to choose a donor with a white background and um, just purely to make mm -hmm. my life and the baby's life a little bit easier because it was already going to be, we knew challenging being an older mum and living in Australia mm -hmm. and, and, and just being single as well. So, you know, a sure. little bit less challenges. Yeah. Was there anything else important to you with a donor? No, not at all. Uh, originally, I selected the blue eyes, the blonde hair and the tall donor yes. and the skinny donor. And mm -hmm. after a while, you kind of just, you know what, don't need any of that. Mm -hmm. One thing I, I did look into was the blood type. So the RH mm -hmm. blood type, I ended up going with a uh, O negative blood donor, which is the same as mm -hmm. me. Now, this was my first donor. So I did go through two, but I'll get to that later. But the first donor I chose O negative, thinking that if, hey, it's the same as me, it might be easier because we're all compatible. Uh, it doesn't mm -hmm. work like that. <laughs> did you think there was a higher chance of you getting pregnant because it was the same blood type? I did, yeah. I really sort of went down a rabbit oh. hole of researching blood types and the rabbit hole probably wasn't good. It was Dr. Google, you know, really not, <laughs> not using the right chains. But when I discovered O negative is actually a, apparently a harder blood type to fall pregnant. So that was one thing mm. my doctor even had told me, but this was probably a little bit too late. So this was probably, this was after I'd done a, my two IUIs and, and started my IVF journey. It turns out that that's not accurate. So it, it doesn't really matter of your blood type. So now you have a donor and you chose two vials. How do they normally purchase that? Because I know egg donation, they're usually six to eight eggs. So what is it like on the other side? Yeah, so I actually purchased four vials of washed mm. sperm. Mm -hmm. So the IUI vials, because they say mm -hmm. with the clinic that you need to have two vials per cycle, just in case one is not valid. And not valid basically means it doesn't have enough swimmers in it. So the mobility gotcha. of the sperm needs to be above 5 million 
in order to proceed mm -hmm. with the procedure. And if it's under that, then they would defrost the second vial ready to go. So you're not wasting a cycle, essentially. And were they all from the same donor? This one was, yeah. So I, I oh, chose, okay. uh, used Zytec uh, was the company and I, four vials of the same, same donor. Yep. Okay. Thinking that would be all I needed. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, so then what? I guess the doctor does all this, correct? No. So you actually go through the website and do the purchase of it. You put in your clinic mm -hmm. and your physician's name. And then once you purchase the vials, you can either store them at the cryobank or you can have them shipped to your clinic. And depending on which is cheaper for storage, mm -hmm. because you do have to, once you buy the the, the vials, which are already about $1,000 each US, give mm -hmm. or take anywhere from 700 to $1,400 for a vial. I chose to ship only two of them to my clinic and I kept two of them in storage at uh, Zytac because they offered me over two vials, you get free storage for up to 12 months. So I kept two vials with the bank and two vials with the clinic. And so they the clinic held on to them. You get them shipped, so essentially in dry ice. They ship mm -hmm. them out, FedEx overnight. The clinic receives them. You pay an intake fee, and then they store the vials until you're ready to go for your cycle. Okay. And they also charge you storage as well. Of course. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's all about money. Yes. So then what happened from there? So after that, once I was ready to start my IUI cycle, I you know, would go in for monitoring at the beginning on cycle day three and then make sure that I've got some follicles growing. You know, I just, I was on letrozole, uh, five milligrams twice a day, I believe. It mm -hmm. seems like so long ago now. So many pills and, and needles later. So on letrozole, we started that on day three and went till day eight, I believe. It was five days of letrozole mm -hmm. and then kept going in for monitoring every two or three days. And then once the actual follicles looked like they were of decent size, so I had three follicles growing, uh, all of very even numbers and decent sizes, mm -hmm. going in for the actual treatment itself is very quick and, for me, painless. I know some women do experience pain with the IUIs, but very over and done with in less than three minutes. It was, <laughs> it was <laughs> quite crazy how fast it all was. It's like, oh, I could be pregnant. But, you know, they use the, the beautiful clamps you know that we mm -hmm. all love and love to hate mm -hmm. get a, a date with Wanda first the internal <laughs> ultrasound machine um, just to make sure that everything's on track and then the clamps go in and they insert a catheter right up into the uterus and inject the wash sperm literally mm -hmm. over and done with in seconds they tell you you can sit down and wait for 10 minutes after the procedure or you can get up and go. To be honest, I just got up and left. Mm -hmm. a, lot of the, a lot of the superstitions are that you got to lay down for 15 minutes, 30 minutes, put your legs up in the air. But that's mm -hmm. not really the case for an IUI. It's, it's proven medically that it's not necessary because the sperm's already in your uterus, so it doesn't have to swim up your tubes. Mm. So it's already up there. It doesn't need to, mm -hmm. to go any further. It's just got to find <laughs> just got to find the right egg. Oh, I did forget about the injection though. So you do do a trigger shot two days prior or about thirty six hours prior to mm -hmm. the actual IUI as well to to trigger ovulation so that the egg drops down. It sounds really similar to the egg retrieval process. Yeah, yeah, quite similar except without all the needles. It's just just that one needle, one trigger oh, shot. Okay. And you're a wide awake 
Yeah. <laughs> you had three follicles. Was there any concern about triplets or multiples? I definitely asked the question because that was terrifying being a single mum by choice. <laughs> there, there is the risk. Obviously, it's a risk of anyone having multiples. Mm -hmm. But being that my chances were only less than 5% anyway, it was. it's not as often that that will happen mm -hmm. with with a sort of older eggs as well because we just don't know the quality of the eggs mm -hmm. being older and I hate to use the word but uh you know what do they call us geriatric pregnancies yes. <laughs> terrible sure age but uh, yeah so the, the fear was there but the doctor reassured me that you know if it happens it happens but it's 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 a very very small percentage chance to, mm -hmm. to have multiples okay so now I think you had the two-week wait also how did you spend that <laughs> the dreaded two-week yes. wait. Oh, it was terrible. Um, I actually just kept myself really busy, to be honest. I was working full-time. The day of the IUI, I went straight back to work. I didn't go home. I didn't rest. I didn't take the day off. I just wanted to keep my brain busy, mm -hmm. which I thought was a really good thing to do. This was the first one anyway. Mm -hmm. I made sure that I ate really well during that week and kept my feet warm and cozy and ate some beautiful nourished green vegetables and, and warm foods and, and really kind of just didn't overspot. I didn't do any symptom spotting, believe it or not, for this first one. I, I kind of just wanted to forget that it even happened and then just think about it two weeks later, which I know most women are polar opposite, but I'm pretty good at pushing things to the side <laughs> for the most part. Mm -hmm. So for the for the first one anyway. But really that two-week wait is is – it is. T it still plays on your mind, right? I was having dreams like crazy that week, and I had dreams that I was pregnant. I had lost miscarriage dreams even that week. Like it was wow. a, it was pretty rough at night time, but during the day it was fine because my work keeps me very, very busy. So I didn't really have much opportunity to, to even think otherwise. Mm -hmm. So yeah. So <laughs> so bring us back. Did you do a pregnancy test or did you wait for the phone call? So day. Day 12 it was, I started feeling period cramps and my mm. lower back ache. And that's when I was like, hmm, my lower back pains. And that's when I kind of started going, right, is this, is it, isn't it? And then knowing that, you know, period pa pains and symptoms can be very similar yeah. to pregnancy mm -hmm. pains and symptoms. So, but I was almost positive that it didn't work because I know my lower back pain and I know that's usually my indication. And day 13 is when I did a pregnancy test at home. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was definitely negative. Um, and that's when I called the clinic and my period started the same day. Ugh. So it was very heavy. So it was pretty normal. And the clinic said, don't even bother coming in for a beta, seeing as though you've got a really heavy period and you've tested negative, you know, let's figure out what we're going to do next. And next steps were let's go straight into another IUI. Mm -hmm. So the cycle started all over again. Did you do that the very next cycle? I did. Yeah. So January 2020 was my first cycle and then went straight into it on in February cycle. Mm -hmm. So I went in for monitoring again on day two of my period and then checked that I'd had some follicles and did all the blood tests to make sure that I'd ovulated and all that goodness. Mm -hmm. And yep, kickstarted another cycle again and pretty much repeated that whole process. Was it any different than the first one? No. So it was the, – the difference there was I was symptom spotting. <laughs> I, the second one was a little bit harder for me because I thought – I was one of those people who thought one and done. 
Mm -hmm. you know, as a lot of people going into this when they get told their numbers, right? They're like, hey, you've got good AMH for your age. Everything looks great on paper. I was like, oh, it's going to be one and done easily. So when that first one didn't work, it did break my heart a little bit. And going into the second one, I was like, okay, let's do this. And I think the second two-week wait was a lot harder, mm -hmm. really sort of looking at every everything. Oh, I have a craving. Like, is it too early to have a craving? I, oh, I have little twinges in my uterus. Is What is that? What does that feel like? And mm -hmm. then, you know, you start going down the rabbit hole of, of Googling symptoms and seeing, oh, am I pregnant? I did actually test on day 12, no, day 11 with the second cycle. Mm -hmm. And I got the negative. I didn't test out my trigger shot. So... I knew that I had to wait. So when you get the trigger shot, uh, which is right before the IUI, about 36 hours, that obviously can test positive pregnancy up until about day seven. Mm -hmm. So I didn't test that out for either cycle. I just knew if I did that, I would hate to be looking at also spending money on pregnancy tests <laughs> <Yeah>. every <laughs> single day, uh, which adds up as well as then sort of probably making me more anxious if I was to do that. So I chose not to do went too many tests mm -hmm. during that time. But then, you know, that second negative, that's when I was pretty heartbroken uh, yeah. at that time thinking, oh, okay, I'm broken. You know, the emotions really start taking over you over that stage and thinking, what am I done? What have I done wrong? Is it me? You know, my eggs are old. I'm old, mm -hmm. you know, really kind of starting to put yourself down yeah. about it, which, which started to get very difficult. But you know, I had a really good conversation with my doctor after that. And she said, you know, we knew the chances were slim. You had less than 5% chance getting pregnant. What do you want to do next? And I said, I need to take a little break. So I had a couple of music festivals and a, two trips coming up. So I was like, you know what, before I do anything else, I'm going to take a little break. So I did. And I said, let's pick, it was February then. And I said, let's pick this up in May and let's start on IVF. So you did an egg retrieval. Yeah. So after a fantastic trip to the Bahamas, mm. I was all relaxed and feeling good and seen my best friend who I hadn't seen since the start of COVID. We, I got back in May and started the process of IVF and obviously getting all the medications. It is a minefield of information out there, um, costs and insurance and where to get things and how to do things. And I, I really found the process of at the beginning very I was very lost, especially with the whole money and insurance. Yeah. Insurance in America is mind-blowing of just how complicated it gets. Mm -hmm. And I was lucky that I had $25,000 worth of fertility coverage with wow. my health insurance. That's great. But trying to get a straight answer from insurance as to what's actually included in that 25 k was virtually impossible. No one could really tell you. We're like, <sighs> the IUIs may be included. They may not be included. Your morning monitoring we don't know. You just have to wait until we get billed. And I'm like, well, Ugh. do I pay the upfront cost to the clinic, which cash, you know, cash upfront is cheaper mm -hmm. if, if you're paying for a cycle or if you get billed and then they reject it, it's going to be more expensive. So navigating insurance is probably the thing that I would suggest to anyone starting this journey is to really get a good person to talk you through everything that's included and what's not included. Because I, I went out and I spent four grand on medication mm -hmm. cash out of pocket because the insurance lady had told me that medications weren't included in my coverage so I went out and forked out of pocket for for some of my meds 
which is the Follistum injections and the Ganal relics, which I can never pronounce, <laughs> and uh, a bunch of other menopore and all yeah. those things as well. So, you know, a lot of money forked out and then started the injections. And then that was on cycle day two, started IVF injections. My first needle was fine. It's it's surprising how much your brain really switches on and says you can't do this yeah. and then you just have to talk yourself through it and as a single person I didn't have a support group I didn't have a support person at home to mm -hmm. to help me or to talk me into it so you know I had my best friend on zoom mm -hmm. talking me through my needles saying come on Sam you can do this you know and I was like oh it's gonna get into my fat rolls and she would joke that it's your muscle roll <laughs> <laughs> so you really just need someone to make light of the situation mm -hmm. and, and get past that brain block that says it's okay to inject yourself after the first day, you know, I could do it with my eyes closed, really. It was really quite simple. Yeah, my husband made me do mine. And I am a serious fainter, a very serious fainter. And he goes, oh, no. he said, Jamie, I was scared to death. I was thought I was going to make him do it. And he said, do you want a baby or do you want me to do it? And I was like, <laughs> done. I, I, I did all I of them. Yeah. It really helps yeah. me get through it, but it does. I think mentally, you know, even if you have that support person, I think mentally doing the injections yourself yeah. is is it's empowering Definitely. as well because you know, hey, I'm doing everything I can to bring a baby yeah. into this world, and kind of getting past that point of, yep, let's just let's mm -hmm. just do it, let's just get it done. Yeah. <laughs> you really don't even think about it yeah. after a while. So how did the egg retrieval go? Yeah, so my first egg retrieval, it went really smoothly, actually. I went in on the day and, and basically had very little expectations because, I mean, let's face it, I was 40. <laughs> they will tell you, you know, you might not get a lot. But during all the monitoring, we had quite a lot of follicles, actually. We were, we were noticing about 15 to 18 wow. follicles. Yeah, so we did really, they were really impressed. They're like, oh, for someone your age, again, Ugh. the age thing just kept coming up. And, you know, oh, you did really well and and so on and so on. And then after a, after a while, I started joking that the, uh, and this kind of comes into a story of where my baby's nickname comes from is, her nickname is Choc Chip Cookie. Mm -hmm. Looking at the follicles in the ultrasound, mm -hmm. when you look at an ovary and all the follicles, it looks like a chocolate chip cookie. <laughs> So that's how my nickname for baby came about. Came And every time I went in, I was like, oh, the cookies look good today. <laughs> but yeah, we eventually went in for the egg retrieval and I got 18 eggs that that's day, great. which was amazing. Yeah. When I came to out of the, the twilight zone and they told me I had 18 eggs, I was jumping for joy. I thought for sure, not going to get anything. And then I got the mature rate within the 24 hours. So 16 of my eggs were mature. Wow. And then 14 of them fertilized. Oh, my gosh. So, yeah. So you could tell I was like, oh, these numbers are fantastic, yeah. right? 18, 16, and 14. 14 fertilized eggs at 40-year-old eggs sounds mm -hmm. amazing. And then the two-week or the five-day wait happens. Yeah. And that five days, you're just sitting there with bated breath just waiting. And I had such high hopes thinking, oh, gosh, this is, you know, 14, the average rate is 50%. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking, oh, I'm going to get like six or seven embryos at least. Mm -hmm. And then I get the call on day seven and I had two embryos. Wow. So that was a really big drop rate. Yeah. That was obviously devastating mm -hmm. at that day. But I did choose to do PGT 
testing. Mm -hmm. So the testing on the embryos, mm -hmm. knowing that oh, two embryos being sent off is not good odds coming back and then like that that was the hardest two-week wait was waiting for the embryos yeah. to be tested so and then I got the call from the doctor and I knew immediately it wasn't good news mm. I could tell from her voice she said sorry Sam uh, they both come back abnormal missing a ton of chromosomes <sighs> so there was zero chance they would have even implanted I mean if they did it probably would have ended in miscarriage unfortunately mm -hmm. so I am glad I tested yeah. them and I I I don't think I could have handled multiple losses without testing and, and each to their own with, with the PGT testing. Mm -hmm. But for me, it was, it was pretty necessary because I knew being single and alone and doing this process, I, just, I couldn't have handled that too much. Yeah. So where did you go from here? So we decided that we would do another egg retrieval. Mm -hmm. So we jumped in and did another one and that was the next month. So we went straight into a new cycle um, and that, again, I got pretty decent numbers there again. I got 14 eggs, 13 of them are mature, but then I lost 50% in fertilization. So I had seven fertilized mm -hmm. and then two embryos again. Oh. So <laughs> seemed to be the common, common theme was two embryos and zero of them came back normal again. Oh. So it was two cycles down. See you later. Bye. Uh -huh. And then we like, right, what do you want to do? I was like, let's do another one. Let's do another cycle. But this time I waited. So I did, I waited quite a few months, actually. I took a few months off because I just needed my body to have a break. Mm -hmm. Being back-to-back -back IUIs and then back-to-back -back IVF cycles. In December 2021, I decided to go ahead and do a, another egg retrieval. And I started injections and on day eight of stims of giving myself needles every day, I got COVID. Yeah. So it was pretty devastating. I went into the clinic, even though I had COVID, they said, please come in. We need to check that, you know, because I've already been eight days of injecting. And typically I was about 10 days before I would do my trigger. So I was pretty close to the end of that cycle. Mm -hmm. And it was funny enough that the follicles that then seen just three days beforehand had stopped growing completely. Mm -hmm. So obviously the COVID did affect my uh, follicle egg growth and rates because when we did that scan, it was it was absolutely we're cancelling. Um, you've got no growth. None of your follicles have grown since three days ago and we couldn't even find as many follicles as we wanted to. So that was, again, third cycle mm. down, cancelled. <laughs> and then I wanted to wait a little bit before we started the next one. So it was another three months later before I did a new IVF cycle, but by that stage, I'd used all my sperm vials. Mm. So I'd been through all four vials of my sperm and the donor was no longer available. Mm. So I had to go down that whole rabbit oh. hole of choosing a new donor again. <laughs> but this one was, it was a bit easier this time around. I just went on and was like, yep, that'll do. Picked, <laughs> picked the donor and, <laughs> and was happy and didn't didn't really look at much beyond the, uh, the height and the the genetic history essentially mm -hmm. and making sure that the history was good and compatible with my body. So new donor, March 2021 came around and I, it was 2022 actually it was, sorry, 2022 came around and I did a new egg retrieval. Mm -hmm. This time I got 12 eggs. 12 of them were mature and 10 of them fertilized. Wow. So I was already looking great yeah. on the cycle. I was like, this is much better. 
Um, and then I got five embryos. <gasps> Your best one so, yet. New donor. So I did four cycles, but only three retrievals. Okay. Yeah. Were you doing anything different diet or anything different on these? I did actually. I started taking a couple of extra vitamins as well. So I, I changed my prenatal from, I was taking Ritual, which now I've learned is a bit of a designer, designer drug or designer supplement and change to one a day prenatal. Mm -hmm. And I also diet wise, I pretty much cut out uh, dairy. So I cut out all my dairy and just started eating a lot healthier and, and watching what I ate. But that, that was the big change that I made, whether or not that worked. Yeah. No idea. Um, but it seemed to happen. And, and that was really the only thing that I changed. And, and I think the other thing that I did was I lived my life. I was like, you know what, I'm not going to let IVF run mm -hmm. my life anymore and fertility and fertility. Instead, I I chose to go to a massive music festival right before my retrieval. I went to concerts. I was living my life again. You know, the world was opening up at this yeah. stage. So we were all getting our freedom at that point. And yeah, I think lifestyle wise, I just really enjoyed life mm -hmm. rather than getting bogged down in the whole ritual of injections and everything like that. So Really, I don't know if that made the difference too of just the mindset mm -hmm. of, hey, let's, let's, I hate this word, let, let's relax a little bit. But I did. I just chilled. I chilled out and, and made sure that, made sure I was eating well and not eating a bunch of sugar and mm -hmm. all that stuff, which I don't eat a lot of anyway. But really, the, the dairy was the only big diet change that I did. Mm -hmm. Okay. So now we have 10 blasts. You got those tested. Oh, five. five. Then yep. you five plus. So yep. you got them tested. Yep, got them tested and got the call uh, two weeks later. Uh, again, I could tell by her voice it wasn't fantastic news. Mm -hmm. It was slightly good, but she she started with Sam. You got one embryo. You got one normal embryo, and I was like. <gasps> burst into tears. I was outside my dentist at the time when I got the call. I just had a tooth <laughs> extracted and I was already numb and mindless and I, I had one embryo. I was I was ecstatic. So I had, she said, you've got one normal, two mosaics, mm. one abnormal and one that was untestable. So they, it was, they didn't know whether it was normal or abnormal. So she asked me with that one, do I want to get it retested? And I said, yep, re-biopsy and send it mm. off. But one normal embryo and two mosaics was more than I've ever gotten yeah. in the two years that I'd been trying. So it was very exciting at that stage. Now, tell me again what the mosaic means. So mosaic, when they biopsy, it comes back with a mix of normal and abnormal cells. So it's they can't 100% tell whether it's normal or abnormal. It's just that they have a bit of both. So because when they biopsy, they take a certain number of cells from the embryo. Mm -hmm. And that cell particularly could be either or. Uh, now, it has a much lower chance of pregnancy rather than the 50% chance I was given with my one normal. Mm -hmm. They say it's on average about 15 to 20%. A mosaic embryo can correct itself once it's implanted. Mm. So it could go either mm -hmm. way. It's not fantastic, but it's a chance. Mm -hmm. Did you take a break or were you like, I need to get this thing transferred right away? I took a break. I was like, nope, I'm going to go and live my life a little bit because I could be pregnant. I really sort of think oh, I could be pregnant in a couple of months time. So again, I went on a vacation, had a couple more music <laughs> festivals. If you can't tell, I love my music festivals. And then come July, 
is when I was like really ready to go. I was exercising every day. So I really made a really good point to keep active, to keep the blood flow in my mm -hmm. body. I wanted to really make sure that I was giving my body the best chance to fall pregnant. And I felt doing it right after the IVF cycle wasn't, wasn't for mm -hmm. me. I wanted to be clear of all the hormones and the injections and, and just be in a really good mindset. So I had from May, sorry, from March until July is so quite a few months mm -hmm. break. And during that time, like I said, my, my diet was just healthy eating, lots of green vegetables, like I said, exercising five, six days a week and kept that right up, right up until the day of the transfer, mm -hmm. just keeping my body healthy. Mm -hmm. And how was the transfer? Well, this was my first transfer. So, but again, it was very quick and mm -hmm. easy over and done with in, in what felt like seconds yeah. again. It was a bit more of a, a bit more of a procedure than an IUI just because of the whole embryo thawing and, and you know I've got that whole additional step of the thawing which makes you terrified that it's not going to survive the thaw and I only had yeah. one embryo so but yeah I did the transfer I went home I took that day off work went home watched some really funny movies and some funny comedians because I was told laughter is the best medicine for post-transfer mm -hmm. that it really helps with implantation cooked up some bone broth and some nice delicious soups that week and I actually exercised so the first day after FET my frozen embryo transfer I didn't exercise mm -hmm. for the first 48 hours but I did go for a walk mm -hmm. and then every day after the 48 hours I went on a three to five kilometer walk so you know approximately two to I don't know in miles sorry <laughs> I still worked in kilometers three to five kilometer walk and I also used the, the stationary bike in my mm -hmm. house so I exercised every day after 48 hours and I really feel like that sort of contributed to my success yeah in that because the blood flow is really important is to keep that going through your body and and working that working your body the way it mm -hmm. should so you know rather than sitting still and doing nothing for the whole time I exercised I ate well kept my feet warm did all the little mid I didn't eat fries I did not do <laughs> the superstitious McDonald's fries but yeah I basically went through to six days post-transfer mm -hmm. And that's when I couldn't wait any longer. And I had to <laughs> so, and it was six o'clock in the morning and I went to the bathroom. I saw the pregnancy test sitting there. They'd, they'd been looking at staring at me in the face for the last two or three days. I was like, when should I test? And I told myself I wouldn't test till six days past mm -hmm. transfer. And then that morning was actually, it was about 5.30 in the morning and peed on the stick, went away came back five minutes later thinking absolutely not a chance I did actually film myself walking into the bathroom to try and get my reaction either way just in case mm -hmm. and I looked at the stick and it was the faintest 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 line it was pregnant I think I swore I think my video I I, I was like Holy shit. <laughs> and in my video the face the face says it all but yeah I was pregnant and then I uh, had my first uh, beta on day mm -hmm. 10, so four days later. I tested every day after that, obviously, uh -huh. as you do. It's line spotting, and it got darker, and it got darker, and my first HCG came back as a positive. It was only 104, so it was quite mm -hmm. small compared to uh, a lot of a lot of people that I see. And, yeah, the rest is history. I, it just kept getting darker and darker, and I think I kept testing until at least day 16, 16 days past transfer just to keep checking that I had a line because I just still couldn't believe it. It was mind-blowing that it actually happened. Yeah, what was your thoughts going through your head? At first it was 
terrified. I was absolutely terrified. <laughs> I was like, this is actually happening. Wow. I don't, I'm going to have a baby. What is, what's going to happen? But then obviously the next, next two or three weeks, it, it was just, it was sheer terror of, I've got to keep this baby in me. I've got to keep this baby. I've got to keep this baby. You know, there's so many stories about miscarriage over 40 mm-hmm. and, and what can I do to, to really help this little baby stick around? And I think every day you're just symptom spotting. Aren't you? You're just looking at, you're looking at your pants when you go to yeah. the bathroom and, and checking for blood and every little moment is, oh, I just did something. Is that going to hurt the baby? Or, you know, it's just terrifying. I, I don't think there's anything joyful in it when you're really gone through the trenches to get pregnant. Yeah. It, it takes the joy away from from being pregnant. Mm-hmm. And I think they say the the whole pregnancy is a giant two-week wait. <laughs> you know, 40 weeks is the giant two-week wait because you're constantly fearful that something's going to happen. Yeah. But yeah, I... I mean, it kept getting better and better. The lines were good. The ultrasound at six weeks and we saw the little heartbeat and we mm-hmm. heard the heartbeat. It was just, you know, hearing that heartbeat was the first time I really went, oh, okay, it's happening. She's here. The baby's here. I say she. I didn't know the gender at that stage. But the baby is – I actually kept calling her a she anyway, <laughs> but that was just <laughs> without knowing. But, yeah, so I think it just kept going and, and I got to five weeks pregnant and that's when I turned around to the doctor and I said, I need to know the gender. So obviously doing PGT testing in the US, they do gender mm-hmm. testing. I chose not to find out the genders of my embryo because I didn't want to get connected to the embryo just in case it failed and know, oh, that was my little girl or that was my yeah. little boy. So five weeks though, they she turned around and she's like, what do you want? And I said, I would love a little girl, but I will take any healthy, beautiful little baby. Um, but my dream was always a girl. And she's like, well, I have good news for you. Your embryo was a girl. <laughs> so I that was just the, the day that I kind of took a deep breath and said, right, I'm having a baby girl. This is happening. And every day from then, I positive affirmations in my in my mind, and just to get me through, and told my best friend and my mum and dad, and they're all just ecstatic about it. Mm-hmm. And help having them as your support network, and having people to really talk you through those positive affirmations to say you're pregnant, Sam. It's okay, you are pregnant. You know, enjoy the pregnancy, and and as much as you you want to, you still it's still always in the back of your mind that something might happen, but it definitely uh, started to feel real at that point. Yeah. I was going to ask you, who was your support system going through all this? Pretty much myself. <laughs> I was my own support person. My best friend lived in LA. So she she was my online and phone support. Mm-hmm. And my parents were back in Australia. So, and I really didn't tell anyone else about what I was doing. Mm-hmm. I had one friend in New York that, that knew because I needed someone to drive me to my egg retrievals and home again because mm-hmm. uh, you can't drive. So she definitely was aware of the pregnancy and, and was there to support me as well. But I'm a little bit fiercely independent. So I <laughs> kind of just did everything on my own and, and just went through it by myself. And, and again, the Instagram community, yeah. that was what helped me get through. I had I started my Instagram page and really just was blown away about the support of the community and everybody was just giving you these I felt like they were my support mm-hmm. people most of the time because they understood the yeah. process so yeah it was amazing well how was your pregnancy pregnancy was good for the most part I loved being pregnant absolutely loved being pregnant we had a few little hiccups along the way you know I got diagnosed with um 
pregnancy-induced asthma. I got GERD, so I had severe reflux Mm. and heartburn. That is not a fun part of pregnancy, let me tell you that. I say if anyone has that, get treated right away because it gets worse and worse and worse the further it goes on. And eventually I got medication for it because I, I couldn't even, I was coughing so much and going through panties every day with you know this the peezing as they call it the coughing and sneezing and and peeing at the same time but generally speaking the pregnancy overall was it was it was great Mm -hmm. you know I I got diagnosed with a two vessel cord and marginal cord insertion so obviously that was sort of a bit of doom and gloom around week 18 to 22 Mm -hmm. when Dr Google told me all these things don't go down that path again (laughs) but a two vessel cord is where they have a single artery Mm -hmm. in the cord where in most all umbilical cords have two arteries and one mm-hmm. vein but otherwise pregnancy was was beautiful it was a beautiful thing it was again it was nerve-wracking the whole time every every little thing but uh, once you felt that first kick yeah there's just nothing like it when I was 21 weeks and I was in an MRI machine getting an MRI on the baby's brain because there was some um, lack of development in her brain at the time and that's when I felt her kick right like in that. the MRI machine. And I was like, whoa, she hated the noise. She hated it. Uh, and then it was another three weeks after that till I really started feeling kicking. So it was 24 weeks. And once you feel that first kick, there's just no going back. It was that just made everything worthwhile. And that's when I started to breathe is, OK, we've got to our first viability stage. We're feeling the kicks every day and then they get stronger and stronger and you just start relishing in yeah. in. in the pregnancy. So once you get past that stage, yeah. About your doctor, how did you choose your doctor? It was insurance driven, to be honest. Mm -hmm. So I went through and they said I had to choose a center of excellence. And I went through a fantastic clinic in New York City. And there was a bunch of doctors to choose from. There is a, a website or an app called Fertility IQ which you can go and read reviews of your doctor mm-hmm. um, if there is some. But it's a very, very good site. Mm-hmm. Highly recommended if you are looking at getting, looking into doctors because people are pretty, pretty blunt when it comes to giving mm-hmm. reviews on, on fertility treatment doctors. So, yeah, I just chose and I looked and I looked at a photo and I liked her face. That was pretty much how I chose her. <laughs> I liked her face and she had good reviews. So <laughs> Perfect. Was there any product that you couldn't live without or you would recommend that helped with pregnancy? Tums. <laughs> lots and lots of Tums and uh, Mylanta or, you know, anything that helps the heartburn. Yeah. But no, in all seriousness, the, the, the wedges, the pillows. Mm. I didn't get a big U-shaped pillow because it just would take up so much of my bed. So I got these two wedges that joined together under the belly and that by far was my lifesaver for pregnancy. I can't recommend it high enough. I haven't heard of that one. Mm. I think it's called Baby baby Bump or something like that. I can't remember the name of the, the pillows. But, yeah, it's just two wedges, sits on under both sides. So when you're side sleeping, it stops you rolling onto your back. Mm-hmm. And it just supports your belly at the front as well. Oh, that's nice. So it's, it was fantastic. Yeah. And a pillow between the knees. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So how did you prepare for birth? I didn't do a whole lot, to be honest. <laughs> I actually was more, I was relishing in the pregnancy, you know, by the time sort of 28 weeks came around, I was getting ready to move countries. So I really wow. had so much going on at the time. I didn't have a lot of time to even think about what was happening I packed up my life at 28 weeks pregnant in the, in New York 
went to LA for a week and then moved back to Australia at 29.29 plus six. So I was just shy of one day shy of 30 weeks pregnant before I did the the 26 hour journey back to Australia. So, you know, with that and then my job being very demanding, I was in the middle of some big projects. I didn't think much about it. Uh, I got back to Australia and then had to set up my life here. So again, that took over a few weeks, didn't have time to think about birth. Mm -hmm. Um, And then it was once I sort of hit that 34, 35 weeks is when I was like, ooh, I really should think about (laughs) what I'm doing here. Got registered at the hospital and Mm -hmm. I kind of made a loose birth plan. It was more, hey, I want to give birth vaginally. I want to try without an epidural. I'd love to go all natural. I do want to do it at the hospital, but they have an amazing birthing suites here at, at the Sunshine Coast Hospital. And they have the big tubs, the water birth. My dream birth was a water birth. Mm. So, you know, I could do all that at the hospital. So that was pretty much the extent of my plan mm-hmm. <laughs> was to have a water birth naturally and that was that was pretty much all and trying to do it without drugs. So. Yeah. Going back to your move, what prompted this move? Support. Mm. Having my family, coming home. My dad's too old to travel, so wanted to come home and give him the opportunity to have his granddaughter around and having my mum was huge part of the decision to come home and, and having my family living very close by as well. Mm. You know, it takes a village to raise a child. And now that I have one, I can absolutely <laughs> attest to that. Uh, it takes a village and it takes a really good support network to, to have a child in your life. Mm-hmm. So did the doctor talk about being induced or were you just going to go into labor naturally? Funny story. I was basically breached the whole time. So from 28 weeks, I was breached. And so I kind of expected... We were waiting. They're like, hey, the baby can turn. So we just, I wasn't getting too worried about it at that point. And then I went to the hospital and had a quick bedside scan at 34 weeks and the baby had turned and she was head down. So I was jumping for joy. It was the first time she'd ever been head down. Just three days prior to that, she was breached at my growth scan. Mm -hmm. So in the three days I'd had the growth scan to seeing the OB at the hospital, she'd turned. That's when I got very excited about, you know, a vaginal birth and this was my time to shine. I was ready for it, ready to be a birth warrior. And a week later, she'd turned again. So I was doing spinning babies like crazy, doing headstands and swimming in pools and jumping up and down and you you name it, what, whatever there was that I could do to turn the baby, I was going to do it not like myself. (laughs) Unfortunately, at the 36 week scan, she was breached again, still. There was no no chance. So the doctor said, right, well, we'll um, schedule you a C-section. At that point of time, I was grieving very, very hard because my dream was crushed. Yeah. I was sure the baby was going to turn and she didn't. And so we scheduled the C-section. Fortunately, at that stage, we didn't even have a date. So there was no dates available at the hospital because they're so busy. <sighs> and so they put, put me in a three days prior to my c-section they gave me the date but they couldn't give me the time so it was you're on the emergency roster because we're too busy to give you an actual time so my plan was to go into the hospital i was it, they'd booked me for 38 plus six so one day before 39 weeks time went by she was still breached she was still breached we had a couple of extra scans in that time my c-section date came around and i'd processed everything by that stage i'm like okay cool i'm gonna have a beautiful belly birth this is gonna be a lovely day i'm gonna walk in and i'm gonna have my c-section and walk out and i'm gonna have a baby i really sort of changed my mindset right i I really kind of dealt with that grief very well well i didn't deal with the grief very well of 
moving from a natural to well, I don't say natural because all birth is natural. I moved from a vaginal birth to a C-section and I worked through that grief with, with a friend and, and talked about it a lot and cried every day about it. But by the time I got to the C-section date, we went in 6 a.m. in the morning because they told me to go in at 6, be ready. We did a bedside scan. It was She was still breached, so everything looked good. We were like, yep, cool. Waiting, 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 waiting for my doctor to come in and say we're ready for you because again I was on the emergency roster Mm -hmm. and it was funny about 10 30 that morning I felt this huge movement in my belly and I was like god that was that was a really strange feeling and then my belly became really loose like I was jiggling my belly and I've never been able to do that before and just 30 minutes later my doctor came in and said right we're ready for you so let's we're ready to go down to surgery I was like okay great I'm ready. I got up. I was about to walk down. She's like, oh, we better just do another ultrasound just to check the position of the baby to make sure that we know where to go in. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, cool. So I laid back down. We did a little ultrasound. She's like, the baby is head down. <laughs> <laughs> in the five hours of arriving at the hospital and 30 minutes before I was about to go into surgery, the baby flipped. Oh, my gosh. That was, that, that was it. Oh, it just talk about emotional roller coaster because that just went from me being vaginal birth, grieving that, to cool, now I'm doing a C section, I'm I'm set on this mm-hmm. now, to oh, by the way, now your baby's head down and we're cancelling your C section. And I'm like, Whoa, what how do I process this in my head? <laughs> um so we, she said, right, well, we'll, we'll start the induction process, get you the Foley catheter tonight, and then tomorrow morning we'll start the induction. Mm-hmm. I didn't think twice about it. I was like, okay, we're here. We may as well just do it. It was against everything that I wanted previously because I'd, I never wanted to be induced. I, I, I wanted to let my body what it, do what it was supposed to do. I wasn't given the option to go home. and But at the time, it was kind of like, hey, you know, we're, we're here in the hospital. Let's, let's just get this ball rolling. Mm-hmm. Let's do it. So that night or that afternoon and about four, 3.30, 4 o'clock in the afternoon, I had the Foley catheter inserted, which is the balloons in the cervix to try and soften the cervix up. And then that was a pretty rough night, that one. Uh, we stayed in the hospital overnight. They let me stay because usually they make you go home afterwards and, and come back the next yeah. day. But I was already checked in and admitted. So they're like, you may as well just stay uh-huh. and we'll come get you the next morning between 6 and 8 a.m. So what felt like pretty strong contractions that evening from the catheter, it was very painful. Yeah. Getting the catheter itself was painless, but within about three hours, it was, I couldn't sleep that night. It was, it was a lot of pain. I mean, they're huge. They're 80 mils of water in each balloon. So they're, they're quite big. When they take them out, you're like, whoa, that, <laughs> that was inside me. <laughs> so yeah, the, the next morning they came Uh, in at six o'clock and said well we can't take you over yet everyone's decided to have their babies today so the birthing suites were full so I couldn't go in for the induction right away and they said just you know it'll be a couple of hours it was 3 p.m that afternoon that they got me into the induction Um, so we'd been waiting already since 6 a.m the previous day Mm. and they took the Foley catheter out at 10 o'clock that morning because they can't leave it in more than a certain amount of time but then waited around all day until three o'clock that afternoon before we went over to start the induction process. So already, you know, that that toll on my emotions was huge going from head head down to C-section to head down to induction played havoc on my brain. I was in a pretty 
pretty good mood though overall I was like yep we're right we're doing this we're going into labor I can't wait I was so excited I had no fear of labor whatsoever going beforehand going into it really uh, I was actually excited yeah yeah I have zero fear of it even this day I just think gosh I wish I'd got to experience you know the actual pushing part but I, I didn't so you know that's just ruined the end of the story for you but uh, <laughs> but yeah so they, they broke my waters at three o'clock the next that day and um started me on the drip the the oxytocin drip and it gradually I was smiling and laughing for the first two or three hours like yeah this is fine every contraction I was having about four contractions an hour mm-hmm. um but they were pretty mild for the most part until about about seven o'clock at night then they started to pick up and you know I used my breathing techniques throughout the labor as I got did it I did do a birthing class which I'm glad I did mm-hmm. but she taught me breathe in for four and breathe out for eight and count it. Have your birthing partner count it for you. And I literally did that the whole time and, and it worked beautifully. And that along with the pos- positive affirmations from the birthing partners, like you've got this, your body was made to do this. I feel like I really handled the, the labor like a boss um, in the end. And that's, I think, because I was so excited for it and that's what I wanted. But unfortunately, uh, 13 hours of very intense labor and the highest possible drip that they'd given in the hospital. I was on a 34 drip of oxytocin and the max dose is typically 24. Yeah, so I was having one-minute contractions pretty much every 45 seconds by the end and I I only dilated three centimetres after 13 hours. (sighs) The baby's heart rate started to get a little bit high and that's when the doctor came in and I knew it wasn't good. They're like, I think we need to take the baby out now. We need to get you into an emergency C-section. So this was exactly for almost exactly 48 hours after I first entered the hospital for my C-section originally. And <laughs> at 5.26am that day on the 30th of March, my little girl was born to a belly birth after a roller coaster. <laughs> did you get to have her on your chest whenever she came out? Yeah, so we did delayed cord clamping. Mm-hmm. Um, she came out, I they dropped as soon as her head was out, they dropped the, shield, the sheet. So I actually watched her being lifted oh, all the neat. way out as well. So I watched the whole thing happen. She was screaming murder at the time. She was, which was fantastic yes. to hear because it. So we did delayed cord clamping, and then they they did take her away for probably thirty seconds just to do a quick uh, weight and length check mm. and put a nappy on, and they brought her back right away and skin to skin immediately. Mm. Uh, she didn't leave my side for about four hours after that. So which was fantastic part of having a beautiful belly birth is, is getting that skin to skin straight away. And she latched onto my breast within minutes and started feeding. And so the whole time they were stitching me up, she was feeding off me. Obviously it was probably not a lot there. It was just colostrum or nothing. Mm. She just comfort feeding, but yeah, I got to have her in my arms and, and in my, on my chest the whole time. So through recovery all the way up, wheeling us up to the to the maternity ward, she was with me the entire time. So they didn't take her away except for that initial 30 seconds just to give her away in and, and make sure her airways were clear, which the way she was screaming, <laughs> she was totally fine. <laughs> so it, it was a beautiful, it was a beautiful experience being able to watch her come, come out of my stomach 
and getting that skin to skin time straight away was just I couldn't have asked for a better belly birth. Yeah. How beautiful. Did she already have a name whenever she came out? I had two names at the time. Mm-hmm. I hadn't decided. So I had Stevie Robin and Maggie Adele. And uh, the second I saw her face, I knew she was a Stevie. I'm a big Fleetwood Mac fan. So, <laughs> <laughs> and Robin is my mum's name. And it's also my middle name as well. So she got the same middle name as us. I knew straight away. Stevie. Stevie Town. She was coming out screaming like she was going to sing. So, <laughs> And how was your recovery? My, do you know what? I have had the easiest recovery and I feel very lucky because I, I know a lot of women come out of C-sections with a lot of pain and I was up, I was begging for a shower within eight hours of the surgery and I got it. I got out of bed. The nurse took me in, the midwife. I showered. I started just walking around the room that night I was getting up to feed Stevie. I would actually get out of bed and go and sit down in the chair instead of in the bed because, you know, he'd been in bed for so long. I wanted to sit somewhere else. And I was walking around everywhere within that day. Uh, and then 24 hours later was the same thing, walking around the maternity ward and, and getting in and out. And obviously mm-hmm. the pain was there and I was doing the pain management. So making sure we don't never skim on the pain, like, no matter what anyone says and how you feel, don't skip your pain meds because you might feel great, but you skip one dose yeah. and you might feel the pain. But yeah, otherwise recovery for me, the last, it's been, it's been pleasant. It's been re- relatively easy, maybe doing a little bit too much, but again, that's my fierce independent self coming out, trying to do everything. But I was doing walks around the neighborhood um, within six days, seven days of my C-section and wandering around and sweeping the floors and doing things pretty much on my own. But uh, having my mum here at the house has been, I I definitely recommend if you've got to have someone here helping you, even if it's just to tell you to stop. Because I was willing to get up and, hey, I'll go to do some load of laundry. Mum was like, no, guess sit down. You're not allowed to do any of it because you feel good and it's it's deceiving, right? You've got to remember you've had hundreds of stitches internally Mm -hmm. and externally that – You've got to be careful, no matter how you feel. But I, I've done really well. Pleasantly surprised. <laughs> we talked about this before we started recording, but I see your mom on Instagram, and it's just great. You can really tell she's been a really great support system for you. Yes, couldn't I couldn't do it without her, to be honest. And mm-hmm. as we speak, you know, doing this podcast, she's taken Stevie for a walk in the pram. So uh, just having her around to she's basically my maid she's my port person she's my the bottle feeder if I need her at night time if, if I have to express and give Stevie the bottle if she's not taking to my breast so which mm-hmm. you know that's the whole different challenge is it breastfeeding Whew. <laughs> yeah let's get into that how's it been going I know on Instagram you mentioned it's been a little challenging lately it's it's the thing that nobody prepares you for that nobody can prepare you for is breastfeeding. It is you need a degree to, to breastfeed. <laughs> um, it is the most challenging, painful, tiring, exhausting, and beautiful thing all at the same time. You know, it's it's getting the babies to latch properly. You think their instincts would kick in. You know, survival instinct is you need to latch to eat but they don't and you have to teach them and you have to teach each other how to do it. And, you know, my number one advice to anyone would be to get a lactation consultant right away, regardless of how good you think it's going, because two days later it'll change. I think she's had 
the couple first couple of days in hospital was was relatively easy they just latch on and you're really only giving them colostrum at the time but stevie ended up having jaundice so i wasn't getting my milk my milk didn't come in until day properly until about day eight or nine so i wasn't getting much at all i was getting maybe five to ten mils of colostrum per Uh, pump which I ended up having to pump because we needed to make sure she was getting what she needed we had to put her on formula for the first few days as well so after day Mm -hmm. three to but I ended up like I said by day eight or nine my milk came in I was expressing enough to be able to top her up with my milk instead of formula so I haven't she hasn't had formula since day nine which makes Mm -hmm. my heart happy even though you know fed is best I just wanted to make sure that she was getting the best possible from me and the more she fed from me and the more I pumped, the more my milk production came in. So mm-hmm. um, I'm producing plenty now, plenty of milk. Well, according to the lactation consultant, <laughs> um, it's just a matter of getting her to latch on, getting the tongue ties tested and all that sort of stuff. She's clear. She just has a recessed chin. Um, so she's not opening her mouth properly. And many people can probably agree that the pain of them uh, not opening their mouth is excruciating because you come out with a flat nipple <laughs> and it hurts. It hurts a lot. So we're still learning. We are exclusively breastfeeding with one bottle at night time of my expressed milk. Um, mm-hmm. And that's her witching hour, which is the time where she just doesn't, she fusses too much on the boob. So we really make sure that I just give her the bottle to make her not fuss as much and get her back to sleep. And then I go and pump after that one just to make mm-hmm. sure that. I'm getting the supply that we need. So, And mentally, how are you? I'm okay now. Uh, I will not lie to say that the baby blues didn't hit me very, very, very hard. That first week, I don't think anyone really told me about the baby blues. And I think I cried probably 23 hours out of 24 hours every single day mm. for the first eight or nine days. Mentally, it, it is very, very hard on yourself, especially... Being an independent person as well, you know, you now, you're not independent. You They're dependent on you. So I think everything just sort of hits you very hard. Uh, mm-hmm. And not being able to breastfeed properly is is also something that really hurts. It, it, it makes you feel like you're failing as a mother. Uh, but everybody has this challenge. And, and just the baby blues, the hormones that are racing through your body and hit me harder than I would like to admit. You know, I, I cried at the drop of a hat. I was absolutely an emotional wreck I couldn't even speak to someone without crying leaving the hospital I was bawling like going into the pharmacy to pick up my medication I was sobbing the pharmacy the pharmacist came around and gave me a hug because I couldn't stop crying it really hits you it really hits your heart so it's it's something to keep on top of and now I am I am booked in to start seeing a therapist uh, to deal with not only just the baby blues, but the grief of my birth story, you know, having to, the roller coaster I should, of not yeah. breached, breach, C-section, induction, natural labor, and then back to emergency C-section again, it plays havoc. And then all of the induction drugs that are in your system too makes everything, those hormones even more pronounced after birth. So, and C-sections with the anesthetic and the drugs and everything, it just really sort of comes down on you pretty hard. Mm-hmm. But therapy is is looking like it's starting next week, which I highly recommend. I've never done therapy in my life, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it for the for the sake of myself um, and and my baby. Do you plan to have more kids in your forties? 
No, I'm one and done. Uh, I'm 42 years old now and, you know, I, I do have those two mosaic embryos. I, I couldn't put myself through another round of IVF at this stage. I'm very happy with the one baby. So I am donating my two mosaic embryos, hopefully being able to put them out for adoption if they get accepted. If they don't, then I'll donate them to science uh, rather than have them discarded. But yeah, one, one little baby is enough for me. And what has been your biggest challenge being pregnant in your 40s? Probably the, the, the looks that you get or, you know, the, for me, I guess it was doubled by being 40 and single as having sort of a bit of judgment from mm-hmm. people, of, you know, why are you doing this on your own and why are you doing this when you're already 42 years old? That was probably the most challenging part. I didn't get it from any friends or family, but, you know, a lot of a lot of people do frown upon it, right? It's, it's you know, mm-hmm. you're going to be an old mum. Well, yeah. I'm going to be the best mum because I've had so much life experience. Yeah. I, I, I know life. I've lived mine. So now I can give my baby the best possible experience mm-hmm. that they can have. So I, I really don't you know, the, the challenge for me was not really dealing with those people, but dealing with it in my own own mind as well is, mm-hmm. hey, it's okay. It's okay to do what I do. And that was probably the early challenge was for me. Yeah. Is there anything you'd recommend that would help prepare someone for pregnancy and birth? I don't think anything can prepare you for birth. <laughs> <laughs> but if I was to, to give any advice um, in preparing is is just to be yourself and, and accept accept what you're doing, accept what, don't worry about what society says, move, mm-hmm. just do what you can, eat well, but don't don't cut out everything that you're not living your life. I think I mentioned it earlier is, is you have to live your life and really, mm-hmm. really enjoy what life has given you and, and work with it rather than against it. You know, it it's a hard process and it's, it's soul destroying in a way, going through so many rounds of IVF and miscarriages and mm-hmm. things like that. So, you know, I, the hardest part really is to to love yourself. And that's pretty much the best advice I can give. I love that. What advice would you give yourself when you were pregnant if you could go back? To enjoy it more, to rather than be fearful of it so much, mm-hmm. really enjoying the pregnancy and, and what it had to, what it was in my body. Cause I think I really only enjoyed it in those last couple of weeks and and then the last week, you don't enjoy it because it hurts so much. Um, but earlier on, my, my advice would be to in, to to enjoy it and embrace it, and, and embrace what your body's doing. Like it's a it's a miracle that it happens, and the fact that anyone can get pregnant with with the way is just mind blowing. Like it doesn't matter how old you are, the, the human body is incredible in what it does. So kind of relish in it. And where can we find you on the internet if we want to find more about you? Yeah, my uh, Instagram, I have a handle is solo.journey.to.motherhood. And I also have a a blog, but I haven't updated that since my last round of IVF. But uh, I do have a blog, which is Solo Journey to Motherhood um, as well, which goes through all the the process of um, picking a donor sperm and the IUIs and retrieval processes and injections and all that sort of stuff. Wonderful. Sam, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. What an incredible story. And I wish her the best of luck with therapy. And don't forget that lightning strike that happened in the middle of the show during recording. I put that at the back end of the outro music. So stay with us if you want to hear that funny part. And thank you so much for listening. 
I hope you have a great week and I will see you next Monday. goes into a pieces hearing that. Um, <gasps> Sorry, that was lightning. Scared <gasps> me to death. <gasps> what? Yeah. That was a big storm. <laughs> it's not even raining. <laughs> wow. Good old, I love the good old storms. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> no, that's okay. <laughs> that was great. Um,